0: Back in the uh, early 70s, I want to say about 70, 71, some of you who were around back then, and uh, you, if you were a believer or maybe you came across this later on, there was a uh, book that just kind of exploded in the Christian market uh, by Hal Lindsey called The Late Great Planet Earth. How many of you remember that book or read it years later? And uh, what he did... Uh, was take very complex theology and teaching concerning the return of Christ, and he tr- he popularized it. it. Doesn't necessarily mean that was bad, but uh, it's it's somewhat the intent behind. If some of you are familiar and read those uh, novels called the Left Behind series, and so in doing that, now his wasn't nec- his wasn't a novel. As he was taking the biblical teaching and trying to synthesize it and make it where it was uh, popularized or understandable to to the average Christian, okay? Because it's a very complex subject. Now, there's one thing that Christians will differ, and that's concerning various aspects of the second coming of Christ. But Bible-believing Christians that believe the Word of God is God's Word are in agreement with this one truth. Jesus is returning back. You cannot read the Bible and not have that belief. That is just foundational. And anyone that denies a literal bodily second coming is denying the truth of God's Word. So in that, we're in agreement. But where we have disagreement or just different understandings have to do with the the timing or uh, what events may take place before after. And so good Christians uh, have those disagreements. It's not a a tenet of the Christian faith that you have to believe in a certain aspect of Jesus's timing or his coming. I believe it is part of being a Christian, believing that he will literally bodily return. But as far as all the nuances around the seasons, et cetera, uh, there's differences, legitimate differences. I have my view that I lean into, and I use that word intentionally because it's, it's easy to... Uh, get dogmatic on something that the Bible just doesn't have uh, a clarity on every little detail. So, you know, uh, sometimes they'll say to a jury, if they're looking to convict somebody, you want to go with the preponderance of the evidence. So I kind of lean into my understanding of the preponderance of the evidence and say, this is kind of the direction I believe that the Word of God teaches. And certainly, There are differences and weaknesses with all those things. So, why all that? Because what we want to do is we want to narrow our focus and say, let's hear what the Bible does say, and let's don't try to speculate uh, where it's silent. And so, in Mark 13, we're going to really kind of give a a quick overview. There's a lot of detail in it, and we just don't have time to do it. Uh, Maybe at some point, I thought on Wednesday night, uh, we may come back and, and, and unpack it, Mark chapter 13 is a parallel passage or, or chapter to Matthew 24. Those are the events, uh, and, and Luke has a parallel, I don't remember, have the reference, uh, Luke uh, 21, is that the passage is what is called, oftentimes referred to as the Olivet Discourse, because what you have is Jesus teaching his disciples on the Mount of Olives, so it's called the Mount, the Olivet Discourse. So you can go back and, and uh, don't do it now, but uh, you can go back and find a lot more detail in, in Matthew 24, Mark 13, again, gives, gives part of this, and Luke 21. What's interesting is that those three Gospels all record this teaching, okay? And this is right prior to Jesus' crucifixion and, of course, his resurrection. Now, the events that are unfolding in, in Mark chapter 13... We are in, uh, not only are we in on our calendar today, what we call Passion, the Passion, not really not in Passion Week, that's a few weeks away, but in the events in Mark 13, we uh, are, are in the middle of the Passion Week. So on the timetable, this would be of, the, of when Jesus is doing this teaching, this is Wednesday. 48 hours from that, this teaching in Mark 13, Jesus will be crucified. So that's where things fit into the, the timetable. So sometimes people always want to uh, read or, and look at people's last words. Well, these aren't necessarily his last words, but you could say it's his uh, substance, uh, very uh, much a part of his last teaching. And what is the thing that Jesus is wanting to do as he teaches his disciples, not only then, but also for us disciples today? And here's the Here's the big idea in Mark chapter 13. I think I have it on the screen for you to look at. Here's the, the big idea that, to keep in mind, okay? Jesus prepares his people, both present and future believers, for the end times. So what Jesus is doing here, he's not date setting. He's not identifying the Antichrist. He's not identifying the four horsemen of the apocalypse that the book of Revelation uh, speaks about. He's not doing any of that, but he's preparing his people, his disciples then. But also what often is the case in Bible prophecy is there's a dual aspect to it. There is a present fulfillment of events that Jesus talks about that will take place in those disciples' lifetime. But as we'll see, there's also things that will not take place in their lifetime. They are future. They are things that come. Now, whether... It's our generation, nobody knows. One of the things that every generation since the resurrection of Jesus, believers have sensed and felt that their generation is the generation that we will see the coming, the return of Jesus Christ. Every generation since Jesus ascended, Mark, or rather Acts chapter 1, you remember, um, even at that moment, right before he ascended up into heaven, his disciples had one burning question. And you can look at it later in Acts 1, the first 10, 11 verses. They said, Jesus, Master, is it now, now that you're resurrected, is it now going to be the time that you will restore Israel back to its kingdom, the kingdom back to Israel? Now, there's a little problem with that because it's not exactly what Jesus taught them about restoring it back to Israel at that moment. But again, Jesus said, In that Acts 1 passage, right before he ascended to heaven, he says, look, it's not for you to know the day, the time, the hours. I mean, what you need to do is start in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and preach the gospel. And you need to go back and wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon you with power. In other words, before we get to that end point, there's a lot of work to be done, guys, and that we need to preach the gospel and you need to carry the gospel. Now, this is what is interesting just to get back into Mark 13 in just a moment, but in Acts chapter 1, as he finished teaching them, they were kind of blinded as Jesus bodily, when Jesus rose from the dead, and we'll talk about this in a few weeks, he didn't come out as a ghost. He bodily rose from the dead. They went into that tomb, and and Jesus was a very neat man because it says that the burial cloth was neatly folded. See, men, see, Jesus is a neat person, so let's take a tip there. Uh, but it does say it was folded up. But Jesus bodily, as, as the disciples were uh, having this, con- as they were having this conversation in Acts chapter 1, he bodily rose up into heaven to where their eyes were blinded and there was these two angels that appeared and they said, why are you looking up into heaven gazing? Don't you know, now this is a key passage, key phrase, this same Jesus. That's a key thing. That means that same body, Jesus, that rose into heaven, that same Jesus, not somebody claiming to be Jesus, that same body, Jesus, will just as he went up, one day he will return. But they had marching orders. And all those disciples, we know them they later became apostles, they all had this sense that the return of Christ was going to happen before they died but it didn't. And the generation that followed them had the sense that Jesus is going to return in my lifetime. And again, every generation, even today, we see all these things happening, but Jesus warns us, don't be fixated on dates, but be fixated on some fundamental truths to not only have your lives in preparation for the event that could be coming, and it could be generations and generations away. We don't know. But Jesus does this in Mark 13 as he prepares us with his teaching of his followers, his disciples, both present and future. He would be talking to us. We're in the future and uh, of how they should live and, and what they should pay attention to. So let's pray, and we're going we're gonna to walk through this fairly quickly and just let uh, some things of Jesus uh, give us some insight on what he says about the end times, or the end of the world. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we seek uh, your truth, your Holy Spirit, to move among us by your word. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Glorify your name. Let us be rekindled with a sense that Jesus Christ is alive and one day will be returning uh, back to this earth where he will rule and reign. Lord, your word gives us, gives us confidence that these things are true. Even though we don't see them, we, we live and walk by faith, Lord, we stand on the testimony of Jesus and his words, and we pray that you'll gain us, give us confidence this morning as we open this book and hear your word in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you have your Bibles to Mark 13. If you don't, or you don't have it in some electronic form, you're really going be to be lost, and you'll just have to take my word for it. And that's dangerous, because if you're a Christian... You should be a per- person of the word. Uh, so, so maybe go back if you didn't bring it, and, and uh, maybe you can go back online and listen to it or go back and read the passage, and, uh, but, but make sure that these things are in Scripture uh, when you're under, under the word of the Lord. That's how you grow as a, as a follower, as a disciple of Jesus. I want to make six observations or just six observations from Mark 13 this morning. And uh, we're going to move through these fairly rapidly, otherwise we'll be here till about four o'clock, so uh, uh, we don't want to do that. We'll save a lot of the detail for maybe another season on a Wednesday night teaching. But number one, notice with me the first observation in verses one through four, is what Jesus instructs us as he prepares his people is he speaks about the beginning of the end. Now let's just kind of put this in context a little bit. Look with me at verse one and it won't be on the screen. So again, you need to bring your Bibles. As Jesus was leaving the temple, remember a lot of activity in chapter 11 and 12 took place in the temple. A lot of activity took place in the temple. And as Jesus was leaving the temple, and there's something also very significant, not only was he just physically walking away, but remember we taught that uh, there was that the work of the temple as being the the uh, conduit by which God met with his people, that was now gone. That was abandoned. That The the temple, as the Bible would teach us, is that we, the church, the body of believers, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So just make that note there. It's more than him just walking away. And Jesus was leaving the temple, verse 1. One of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent stones buildings. He was talking about this massive Herodian temple that was built. Herod the Great, and just a little history because it's important, began this about 20 years before the birth of Christ. And at the time of Jesus, they were still working on it. That sounds like a church building project, doesn't it? I mean, it still wasn't finished. There's always something going on. And they were still working on it. This was a massive, in fact, it was, uh, it was one of the great wonders of the Roman world, because again, Rome was in the dominant, uh, they were controlling Palestine in this season. So the temple was certainly a magnificent sense of grandeur and pride. Some of you may have heard of of the uh, Jewish historian by the name of Josephus. He was a Jewish historian, wrote on Jewish history, and listen to how he describes this temple. He does a marvelous job, and he was somebody who, who witnessed it. He said this in one of his writings, the exterior, talking about the temple, the exterior of the building wanted wanted for nothing that could astound either the mind or the eye. For being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold, the sun was no sooner up than it radiated so fiery a flash that persons straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes from the solar rays the way it hit the temple. To approaching strangers, it appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain, for all that was not overlaid with gold was of purest white. Some of the foundation stones of the temple were 40 feet long by 12 feet high by 18 feet wide, and they gave this brilliant white appearance. This was a massive, massive building. And so, this disciple uh, was, was kind of wanting to, you know, just, you know, kind of start, start this conversation with Jesus and say, wow, isn't this fantastic? And Jesus really shocks him when he says, he says, verse 2, he said, do you see these great buildings? He says, not one stone will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. What is he saying? He's saying there is coming a time in which this magnificent structure that looks like it could never be destroyed. You know, the folks that made the Titanic said, even God cannot sink this ship. We know how that worked out. And Jesus said these words. In fact, you remember a place, I don't have the reference, but you remember there was a place when he's conversing with some of the religious leaders, and he said, destroy this temple in three days and I will raise it up. And they thought he was talking about the temple then, but he was referring to his own what? His own body. And that was one of the charges that they made against him was that he, he sought to destroy the temple. That was, that was a big deal. But here he's telling his disciples that this temple will be destroyed. Well, we know from history. Doesn't matter, Bible. Just history uh, tells us in the year 70, the year 70, We're in 2017, correct? Didn't change overnight. But in the year 70, a Roman uh, general by the name of Titus, I know he didn't write the book of Titus, but a Roman general, Titus, came into Jerusalem, uh, and and part of their, their plundering is the temple burned down and was destroyed. It was leveled. How many of you ever heard of the Wailing Wall? That's the only thing left today of the Temple of Herod. That's why it is so significant. You know, you see pictures of Orthodox Jews and visitors at the wall, and sometimes they'll put prayer requests. and That that wall, that piece of wall, that's the only thing that survived uh, in seventy A.D. from everything being destroyed and, and torn down. And Jesus predicts this; he says this. And so, look at verse four. The disciples had two big questions. They want to know when is this going to happen. And what, are, what will be the sign that it is about to be fulfilled? And as I said earlier, there is always, or not usual, always, but usually in Bible prophecy, there's always an immediate fulfillment. And the temple being uh, destroyed in the year 70 was an immediate fulfillment. But part of what Jesus is going to teach here is that there is a future fulfillment to the words that he teaches in chapter 13. And so what Jesus is wanting, again, us to be reminded of in this, in this teaching is that he wants us to be more concerned, and he is more concerned, in preparing God's people for the trials that lay ahead of them rather than worrying about dates and times and various signs. He'll talk about that in a, in a broader sense, but he doesn't say on this calendar date, at this time, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. He doesn't say that. He wants them to be prepared. So secondly, not only does he teach us about the beginning of the end. But secondly, in verses 5 through 8, he says, get ready. Get ready. Look at verses five, uh, verse 5. Jesus said to them, when he talked about the, one of the, the signs, he says, look, that temple's going to be destroyed. It's going to be leveled. But he said that one of the things you need to pay attention to in getting ready in verse 5 is he says, watch out that no one deceives you. Verse 6, many will come in my name claiming, the NIV says, I am he. Anybody read anything about people that claim to be Jesus or some Messiah? Right, our history is filled with, with those things. And so Jesus prepares his people, as I said, both present and future, for the end times. Secondly, by warning them about false saviors and false signs. And that's where Every generation gets worked up and makes these predictions that, again, make Christians and believers look stupid. So what is Jesus teaching us here? He says, watch out that no one deceives you. That's the first thing he says. Why? Because Jesus, knowing all, he knows there will be many who claim to come representing him and teaching them, I am the Messiah. And this is, you know, the way, follow me. He said, look, there's going to be a lot that come, and you need to pay attention that no one deceives you. He says three times in verse 5, 23 and 33, watch out, be on your guard. I mean, he says, pay attention. Don't be caught napping. uh, And he says, look, there's going to be some non-signs. In other words, these are things that every generation experiences. One of those non-signs is about those who claim to be the Messiah. Those who will come in my name saying, I am he. That's exactly what he says there in the passage. They don't just say, I represent him. They're saying what? I am Jesus. Now, this should not reflect on the school I went to for two years, but I remember, (laughs) there, and I later surmised he had uh, some mental health issues. Um, but I remember there was this guy across from the hall. I went to this Christian college, and he lived in my dorm uh, area. And he just—he was just a strange guy to begin with. But it seems like as the weeks and months went on, he got stranger. You know people like that, right? Like, yeah, I'm looking at one. No. Uh, and so I remember he resorted to walking around. I meant you looking at me. I'm not looking. I don't I don't know y'all that intimately. But I remember he walked around in his bathrobe and to the point that he thought that he was became Jesus. Thankfully, the administration helped him pursue that ministry outside of that educational confines there. That's a nice way of saying they helped him move on there. Uh I don't know what was going on there, but uh um sure he was deluded remember Jonestown 1978 I remember I don't remember how but I mean it was you know a teenager and I remember seeing that awful picture on Time and Newsweek of uh, it was something like over 800 people who committed mass suicide many of them were murdered we came to find out but many of them committed mass suicide because of this leader who claimed to be a messiah type figure Jim Jones um, led and these were not, you know. It's easy to say, oh, they were mentally deranged, stupid people. You know, I would never do that. Listen, you look at a lot of these, a lot of the ones there at Jonestown. Some of them were lawyers; they had master's degrees. I mean, they were not. I mean, there were certainly uh, the poor were taken advantage of, but the many of them also were very educated people. Uh, David Koresh, move it a little further, in 1993, in that uh, Waco disaster, where I think 51 days standoff and over. 73 died. He claimed he was the Messiah. Uh, you, may not, you may have forgotten this group. In 1997, it was a cult that was coinciding with the hale Bop comet. And you remember the picture when it, it showed this, this group of individuals, I think it was 39 of them, committed mass suicide and they found them all on bunk beds and in, uh, in, in dressed in the same kind of junk running suit and they all had the same kind of Nikes or something on, and I uh, don't know what that was all about. But they believed that the hale comet was actually the spaceship, and they were preparing themselves to be uploaded to this spaceship, and so they committed suicide, and Marshall Applewhite... You want to remember that name? You can go look on YouTube and find his final message of this. It was a cult, and the sad thing is, is you you know, it's easy to laugh. Oh, that's so, no. These were people, I believe, were hungry for a purpose, hungry for meaning. Unfortunately, they were deceived by. By counterfeits. And so Jesus warns about counterfeits. He also tells us about some non signs, and this has been true of every age. Look at verse 7. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. I looked up a statistic this morning, and there is approximately 10 to 12. Uh, official wars. I'm not sure who makes them official, but anyway, there's 10 actual wars and eight active military conflicts right now in 65 countries, and it is costing on an average of over 10,000 deaths to, a year just in wars that are going on right now that we probably have never heard about that are going on somewhere in the world. What's the point? Jesus says, "Look, look, look!" What he says. He says these are only. Labor pains. He uses that that example of a woman uh, ready to give birth. I've only experienced that vicariously. I've never experienced it personally. Thank goodness, right? I know ladies say, "Oh, you men, you don't have any concept of what pain is." All right, but Jesus gives that example and says, "Look, just as a woman who is preparing to give birth with pain, he likens that the earth as it is preparing." To receive Christ to the end time, he said, it'll be much like the pain of a woman about to give birth. It's going to grow in intensity prior to that birth or prior to the coming of Christ. So Jesus says, be confident even in the midst of suffering. And thirdly, not only does he tell us to get ready, but he tells us to not be discouraged in verses 9 through 13. Verse 9, you must be on your guard. Remember, he's talking to his disciples, but it also we know from uh, future that this has been the case of millions of Christians. But he tells his disciples, you must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils flogged or beaten in the synagogues. They're going to beat you in church, even though that's not the church, but they're going to beat you in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. Jesus prepares his people for the end times by encouraging them to remain steadfast in the midst of persecution. Right now, there is approximately 10 million Christians around the world, according to a persecution watch, that are under intense persecution somewhere in the world right now. 10 million of our brothers and believers, our brothers and sisters, fellow believers, are experiencing persecution, death, imprisonment. Jesus says to these disciples, and we know from the record of history that every one of these disciples except for the Apostle John, who died probably of old age uh, on the island of Patmos and prison. But every one of these disciples, apostles, were all martyrs. Remember when Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, you shall be my witnesses? The Greek word for witness is the Greek word martyros. What word do you think we get from that? How how quick would you want to sign up to be a martyr? He says, you'll be my witnesses. Oh, go out and hand out tracts, knock on doors, you know, blah, blah, blah. No, you'll be my witness, and it will cost each one of you, because he knew what would happen in each of their lives, it will cost you your life. Peter, church history tells us, was crucified upside down because he said he is not worthy to be crucified like his master. And there's also, if any of you have ever read the book uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs, you'll see a, a a very detailed history. Don't read it before you go to bed. Of Christians who gave their lives, children who were killed and and murdered because of maintaining faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus says to them, "This is going to happen." And 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 see, remember. These are all Jews that he's speaking about. And so it, it's like many of uh, even in Jewish families today or, or even in Muslim families that to convert and become a follower of Jesus, the families oftentimes, I've, I've read this of Jewish families, they will actually hold a funeral for that person and their family. Now, the person's not dead but they will actually hold a funeral because they are declaring that as far as any relationship, you are dead to me. So this was an intense cost. The Roman government would persecute because if you did not declare that Caesar is Lord or God, you could be killed because of treason against the state. That was a major conflict because Christians said only Jesus is Lord. There is no other Lord. Caesar is not Lord. Only Jesus is Lord. And so, in many of those cases, their life was taken. But Jesus says in verse 13 this promise He says, But the one who stands firm to the end will be what? That is, now don't confuse with that with somehow some type of works based salvation. He's, he's not talking about that. We know Ephesians 2 8 and 9 says, By grace you have been saved through faith. But what he's emphasizing is that genuine faith, hear me now, this is relevant to everybody here, genuine faith is revealed through trials and tests that we endure. Remember what James says when we're going through the the book of James? He says, rejoice when you go through various trials, because it's in those trials that the testing or the strengthening of your faith is made known or revealed. Construction, I think about off uh, reading about this uh, massive bridge that was built in St. Paul. You remember there was one that collapsed several years back, right during rush hour? And when they rebuilt it, the weight that they put up on that bridge before they opened it up was three or four times the amount of weight that normal traffic would would uh, uh, you know would experience. What were they doing? They were testing the integrity of the structure. They were testing the integrity of the steel. Why? Better for it to show defects and collapse under the test than when automobiles and people and families are driving across that bridge. So when trials come, Jesus said, especially the intensity of of these trials, he said, stand firm to the end and you will be saved. Now we know... We know from history that does not always mean deliverance of your physical life because there are multiple millions of believers who went to their death. If you have, and this is the reason I think it's so important to carry a, to bring a Bible because of somebody like John Wycliffe who was responsible for translating the Bible into English so we would be able to read it. He was tied to a wooden stake and burned alive. Why? Because he translated this book from Hebrew and Greek into an English vernacular that we could all understand. That was his crime. So when you pick up this book, thank Jesus for his word, but thank you John Wycliffe and many others who gave of their lives for the word of God. I think that's important and I think it's worthy for us to take it out of the back of our car and use it every once in a while. Fourth, Jesus says, don't be discouraged. He said, the king is coming. The king is coming. Now, I skipped over a big section there that speaks about the what, what oftentimes is referred to as the tribulation. There's just too much there that we, we can't get into. Um, but I would just suffice it to say this. And this isn't the section we're in right now. But if you want to go back and look at verses 14 through 19... Is Jesus makes a direct correlation between a prophecy given in the book of Daniel, chapter 9, and its fulfillment to what he's talking about? Okay? And that's really important when we talk about Bible prophecy based on this principle. Think about the prophecies concerning the birth of Jesus. There were numerous of them, weren't there? Right? Hello? Right? They were all literally fulfilled. Even the. Prophecies concerning his death, they were literally fulfilled. So if that is the pattern of how the word of God fulfills prophecy by literal fulfillment, then when we come to his second coming, why are we going to spiritualize it and not make the events and things literal in our understanding, okay? So you can go back and look at that another time. But look at verse 24. He says, but in those days following that distress the niv says you may have a different version uh, different wording there but he's talking about the seven years of intense tribulation of judgment and again there's a whole thing around that we just can't get into but he says this is not going to be something that's done off in secret I mentioned to you about one of those who liked to predict, I think, you know, nine different times the Jehovah's Witnesses had nine different times they predicted the return of Jesus. And finally, about the third or fourth time, somewhere in the 20s, when they they seemed to kind of be striking out with their predictions, they came up with this scheme. Well, he returned, but he returned secretly. Only we know he returned. Nobody... Well, that goes, that flies in the face of what the Word of God says. Look at this. He says, But in those days, what days? The days following the tribulation, he says, The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. Because the moon reflects what? The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. What is he saying? The return of Christ is not going to be some little secret. Cult thing, it is going to be a cosmic, cataclysmic event that no one will not be a witness to in what it's happening. One scripture, and there's several in the Old Testament, the Old Testament, Daniel 7, centuries earlier, says about this event and what Jesus is talking about. Daniel is key, I believe, to having some understanding of what Jesus is teaching. In Daniel 7.13, the prophet Daniel, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, that's a term used to speak of Jesus, coming with the clouds of heaven, he, the Son of Man, came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. He's saying, look, this was, a, this was, a, this was a, an event in the clouds of heaven, See, Jesus, when he came the first time, remember when he came the first time? Born of a manger, little baby, everybody was in cooing and aahing. Everybody's okay with that. Culture is okay with little baby Jesus. Little baby Jesus doesn't threaten anybody, and not that adult Jesus threatens anybody. But, I mean, his life, his testimony, his witness, that, that doesn't bother people. But what is it that when Jesus got into his 30s and he began teaching that the religious folks sought to kill him? What happened? Little baby Jesus, how many witnessed little baby Jesus? Handful, really, right? His first coming, a handful. What does the Bible give us an indication that when Jesus returns again, is it going to be a handful of people that witness? Be a massive witness. Philippians 2 says that every knee shall bow. Every knee shall bow. Now, that doesn't mean that every knee will bow to him as Savior. You see, that's the opportunity you have right here today is to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And I would recommend that you receive him as Lord and Savior today and not judge when it's too late. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is what is Lord. You say, "Well, I don't believe that." Well, you have the right not to believe it. I'm just here telling you what I believe, and what you can read it for yourself. What the words of Jesus speak about the return of Jesus, the King is coming, and He's coming in great glory. Fifth, don't be discouraged. Jesus is returning, and fifth, He He, he Gives some, he gives hope that in the midst of this judgment, there's hope. And this is the what are the signs of the time? What are the signs of the time? And Jesus says, wanting to make clear, verse twenty-eight, he talks about the fig tree. He talks about the fig tree. Do you remember in chapter uh, last was it last week we talked about the fig tree where he came? And they were walking outside of Jerusalem. You can go back and look. Remember, and he he saw a fig tree from a distance, and it had lots of leaves. Remember we talked about how a fig tree is symbolic of Israel? And how this tree from afar away had lots of leaves? And talked about how that was symbolic of the condition of Israel, that on the appearance they looked to be very leafy, right? You see a plant or a tree, and it's lots of leaves? What does that, hey, it's healthy, it's good, right? But, he, but the Bible says in Mark 12, when he got closer and examined it, it didn't have any fruit. Was that 11 or 12? I can't remember. It's 11 or 12, I guarantee you that. <laughs> but he gives this example. He says, just as you see trees... In seasons, just like here, you see trees that don't bear leaves and fruit. Oftentimes in winter, something we don't have here. Some of us remember remember winter. You know it's not the time, but when you start to see the green and the leaves and things starting to bud, what does that tell you is coming? Summer, right? Spring, summer. The, he's saying that's all he's saying. He's saying, just pay attention to what's going on because when you see these things things start to happen in a growing intensity, just as you can bear witness to a tree and see that something is about to take place, so too can you look at what is happening around you and know that the time, verse 29, even so when you see these things happening, you know that is near right at the door. Then he says, verse 30, he says, I tell you this. Your King James might say, verily, I tell you this, or I tell you the truth. It's one of those statements that is a very attention. In other words, Jesus is saying, pay attention. This is really important. He says, this generation, say this generation, This generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth, verse 31, will pass away, but my words will never pass away. He says, this generation. Now, hit your pause button for one second, and let me just use something you may read or, or misunderstand. This is one of those scriptures that sometimes people use to interpret what Jesus is saying and to who he's saying it to. So when Jesus is saying this generation, here's the option. Is it this generation meaning you guys, not you guys, I'm his disciples? In other words, you're not going to die until all these things happen. Or everything that he has just talked about that will take place, moon darkening, I mean, all all the stuff intense, all, this, all the tribula, everything, that that generation that's living and experiencing those things will not pass away. They will see the coming of the Lord. Now, my understanding is that's what he means. The generation that is witnessing and experiencing all of the intensity of this late, this birth, the intensity of wars and famines and false messiahs and just everything seems to be falling off the you know the wheels i mean everything's going just an in intensity of persecution jesus says that generation will see the coming of the lord i believe that's just the plain reading of what it what it says the generation of people living during the end times that witnesses the signs and events leading to the return of christ they will not Pass away until these things are seen. And last, in verse 32 and 37, Jesus says simply, pay attention. Pay attention. I have a report card somewhere from the third grade in the days when the teachers actually wrote with a pen and a little booklet. Does anybody remember those days? Not these electronic, go online You know, had to be signed by, you know, a parent, whatever. That was always an unpleasant experience in my household. But in this third grade, Mrs. Villarreal's class, every quarter she wrote little comments about me that quarter. And they progressively got worse as the year went on from very talkative. That's a surprise. Uh... Makes unnecessary comments during class. And it just got and then what I love about it is my father wrote a reply at some point and says, in a very genteel way, "I've had a discussion with Timothy, and please let me know if these things do continue." Well, that was a nice way of saying, and you can imagine the horror that happened, that no, he, he was a loving father. But he had hands the size of a Buick, but he, he was a loving father. Ex-Marine, ex-vice squad cop, he was a tough guy, but Jesus softened him up by the time I was born. My brother's got all the rough stories, all right? The point is, is that Jesus, and one of the comments was, he does not pay attention. Jesus is saying, you don't have the luxury as a Christian not to pay attention. You need to pay attention to what's happening in this world that God has made. Psalm 24, 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. This is the earth that belongs to the Lord. And he's saying, Pay attention. Look at what he says in verse 32 and 33. He says, But about that day, here we go, about that day, meaning that cataclysmic day that all these things will take place, or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven. And here's a phrase that's a little confusing nor the Son. He's saying, I don't even know it. You're like, wait a minute, but Jesus is God. How does he not know it? And there's a whole, when I say mystery, it doesn't mean mystery in the sense of it's unexplainable. It's just unexplainable to our little minds that God, a very God, became a man. Let's just try to explain that and figure that one out. Right? How do you do that? If you do that, then you'll do something Christians haven't been able. I mean, there's a way of explaining truth, but not necessarily understanding all the nuances of what's involved in that truth. How many of you drove here today to church? How many of you spent any time in your car saying, now, wait a minute, before I turn that key, I, I need to know exactly what's going on in this car, and we're going to tear that thing apart, get the manual out, because I don't understand this. No, you didn't, you didn't even think about it. You got in that car, stirred that thing up, and drove, Right? There's some things as believers we just not are going to understand. We can say Jesus was perfectly God, perfectly man. How do we understand that? I don't know, but God can do stuff like that. But he says, no one knows the day or the hour, but only the Father, verse 33, be on guard. Pay attention, be alert, for you do not know what that time, when that time Will come. Four different times in verse 32 through 37. He says, be alert. Keep watch. Don't let them find you sleeping, the NIV says, verse 36. And there again in verse 37, watch. What do you think he wants us to do? He wants us to pay attention. Pay attention to what he does say, but don't get off into speculation by anybody and everybody that can write a paperback book or has a website. Hello? I have been given more kooky books that people have written or websites or whatever. That's why, as a Christian, you've got you to know what this says. You've got to know what the authentic says. Is there going to be things we don't understand? Yes. But don't let that be a cop out and say, well, I can't understand any of it. No, there's a lot, there's a lot here we can understand that are pretty clear. But there's certainly nuances that we may not quite all understand, but we've got to be connected to the one who knows all, and that's Christ. I read this account and kept it from the New York Times back in 2015. And it's a story of a pilot who made an unusual announcement. He landed at the L.A. airport, and he said this landing was made without any human help. A concerned passenger on the way out of the plane, obviously concerned, asked the pilot, what do you mean by no human help? The pilot explained that there was a type of radio laser beam coming from the control tower, and they called this true beam. And it had the ability to connect to the onboard computer of the airplane. And as the plane approached the runway, the control tower... Now, I know there's automatic uh, pilot, but this was where the control tower directly took control of the airplane and began to guide it and landed it as it was connected to what was called this true beam. They have other technical names for it. Once the place was in proper position and connected to the true beam, the computer took over and brought them in safely for a perfect landing. The key was to be connected to the true beam. Jesus declared in Mark 13 that we should not get distracted by timelines and events concerning his coming. His orders for us were to stay connected the true being him stay connected to jesus if jesus is in operation of the of our main computer our heart then we'll not miss him when he comes stay focused on christ